want to use this up here? Or do you want me to get a stand down there? Good evening. That was good, okay. Hymn number 453, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Hymn number 453. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. And would you turn in your hymnal? You don't need to, but hymn 104, Amazing Grace, hymn number 104. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that brought my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, 
I have already come. Tis grace that hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Verse 5. When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And for our offertory, when the roll is called up yonder, hymn number 600, this is our offertory. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore and the roll is called up yonder I'll be there when the roll is called up yonder when the roll is called up yonder when the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his resurrection share, then his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, when the roll over and our work on earth is done, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, 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 I'll be there. Let us pray. Our Lord and gracious Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together for where the Bible says where two or more gather, there are you also. So, Father, we thank you for being in this place at this time, and we pray that you would bless this offering. Father, that it would go to your work and to your ministry to see the gospel spread. Father, we just pray for the people who are here. Father, we thank you for them coming. But more importantly, Father, we pray for those who are not. So, with all of that in mind, we thank you, Father, for this offering that we're about to receive. In Christ's name, amen.
This is what the world looks like sometimes. Look at faces in a crowd and it's easier to see the crowd, not the faces. It's the way we are. But zoom in to one face, one person at a time. And if you look close enough, you might see what we see. The girl who gets high every day before school so she won't feel anything. Or the just immigrated Chinese mom who teaches her kids there's no God because that's all she's ever known. Where the world sees a crowd, we see a person close up. We're the ones who speak hope to them. We're the missionaries you send when you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. We see what hope can do and we can't sit still because this hope, it's the hope of the gospel. It's a powerful thing. It pushes us to leave whatever is comfortable. It shows the lost, someone is looking for them. And it gives you and us a mission to complete together. In Puerto Rico and Portland and Montreal and Miami, in college towns and small towns and big cities, in every language, in every North American life, Jesus saves. We've seen it. And all he asks is that we, missionaries, churches, everyday believers, share what we have. Give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And this is what happens. New churches start. Those who are far off are brought near. And together, we send hope. Today begins the week of prayer for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Today's day one. When you came in um, if you, at the Welcome Center, or if I gave you one of these, this is your prayer guide this week. I will also put it each day they release a video, or they already put the videos out. I'll share them, upload them to the church's Facebook page so you can see the videos of different things to pray for. Our North American Mission Board is funded by the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Our record goal was set two years ago in 2017. We collected, I think, $11,600. Last year, it seemed like we came in about five dollars or $6,000 for that. Um, when we give to Annie Armstrong, it goes to support, the, I think it's 32 different sin cities that they have identified in areas, big metropolitan areas that are in need of a gospel. Our church has essentially, really our student ministry, has ad adopted one of those sin cities, and that's Salt Lake City. In two weeks, Zach Bauer is flying out to Salt Lake City to go meet with a couple of pastors about bringing, I believe Danny Snyder is going to go on the trip in July, first week in July, they're going to go out there and bring a bunch of teenagers and do a mission project, mission trip, at one of our sin cities. So that's uh, um, what this certainly goes to support. It's areas where there's very few uh, churches where there's a great gospel need in Salt Lake City, as we all know, is a Mormon area. So um, uh, that's uh, what's going on. So we will be collecting. Uh, we're collecting. I believe we're collecting about $500 towards our Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Be in prayer about that, <coughs> about your gift. And we're going to talk about the different types of off offerings. I'll never forget about oh, eight, nine years ago, 
I was going through a series, and um, it was a, a nighttime series. I believe it was actually a Wednesday night. We were going through something, and normally I had about 25, 30 folks or so. And um, anyway, it was, I believe it was in December. And I had spent all these hours in preparing this lesson and the message for that. And I can't remember if it was weather or some event in the community. Anyway, we had four people show up. And that, I think that, that included me. So I was standing up there, and there was like three people. I'm thinking, how discouraging. So I literally said, you know, we're going to push this off for another time. But we were going through this series, and it was like five or six weeks um, because, you know, it was uh, it was this series, and it was really interesting. I can't so interesting. I can't remember what it was like Esther or something like that. But <coughs> we were going through a Bible study. Well, we had to delay it because we didn't have to delay. It. I just thought, well, since everybody's gone, at whatever it was bad weather or something like that, we'll just say. Well, what I failed to realize is that there was one of those three people who came. It was a lady, and she had kids in the youth group, and she was like genuinely looking forward to hearing that and being at Bible study in, uh, that night. And it really bothered her. I tell you, about six months later, she left the church because she, she told people, said, I really was hurt when I'm coming to church to study the Bible and basically look around and say, well, nobody else came, so we won't have Bible study tonight. And I learned very quickly, you can't base your Bible study, your teaching, or the preaching of God's Word based on attendance. You never know the folks who God has brought you there with even when, um, even when no one else is certainly there. But I'm going to preach the best <coughs> sermon you've ever heard in your life on tithing. And I'm going to convince you in the Bible. We're going to see here. In fact, I, you mean make sure you have a bulletin. I want you to plot your white piece of paper because I want you to follow along. Tithing, unfortunately, is a controversial topic. And I'm going to tell you why it's controversial. There's three sections tonight. Uh, tonight's sermon. The first one we're going to see here is going to be about this parable of the vineyard owner. Then we're going to talk about giving to God and giving to Caesar, and that's about tithing. Jesus talks about that. And the second one is about questions of the resurrection, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That's The Pharisees were the conservative group. They would be our Republicans today. The Sadducees were the liberal groups. That's your Democrats. They both hated Jesus. They didn't like each other. And we're going to see in that, that addresses, a Bible talks about that, Jesus um, a question about the resurrection comes up. But you do want to um, turn. go ahead and turn your Bibles. Luke chapter 20. Um, I was so encouraged with our D-Now weekend. Last year, we did D-Now. And Zach was his first year of duty now. And he had, just from our church, he had, because he invites a couple other churches, he had 26 kids. He ended up with 42. So that's a genuine increase in our student, uh, student population. You, you know, we have, <coughs> I was down there earlier before I came up here. There, there was four or five students down there tonight. And um, guys, year ago, year and a half ago, we had one, and that was Daniel Jr. in the on Sunday night in youth group. So even our youth group on Sunday night is is building up, uh, where in it that that's the momentum of building and discipling and growing a student ministry. But it's so encouraging to see young people not just come to church to sit up front, because that's hard. To, those are the premium seats right up front. But I want you to follow along here in your Bible. We're going to talk about this here. The parable of the vineyard owner. This here is a parable that Jesus told about himself. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. It says right here, Now he began to tell the people this parable. Now remember, a parable is a story that represents something else. 
A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. All right? Who are the characters here? The man who planted the vineyard, this is God the Father in heaven. Who are the tenant farmers? These would be the uh, kind of the religious uh, leaders there who um, were, were the Pharisees. Those are kind of, they're, 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 they're the running the religious services and they're teaching people about God. So, so God has planted this vineyard and he left. And he's got these Pharisees running the show. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. Now, who's the servant? The servant represents Old Testament, the prophets. They would come and proclaim to Israel, to proclaim to the Jewish leaders, thus saith, or uh, proclaim to the king, here's what God wants you to do. So all of a sudden, they, they send this servant here. And in verse 11 it says, or ver, latter part of verse 10 it says, but the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, another prophet, but they beat this one too, treated him bad, and sent him away empty-handed. Finally, he sent a third servant, and they wounded this one too and threw him out. So we're 0 for 3 on our servants. Three servants have come, three prophets have come, and they've all been rejected. Then the owner of the vineyard, God, said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Who's the beloved son? Jesus. I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers, Israel, the nation of Israel, the religious leaders, those that <coughs> claim to follow God, saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What that means, threw him out of the vineyard, is you would not kill someone inside your city walls, so you throw him outside of Jerusalem, outside the city walls, and you crucify people outside the walls. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And Jesus said in verse 16, because remember the owner of the vineyard is God, he will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. Now, who are the others? Others are Gentiles, other folks who believe in this son who was murdered. So understand, Jesus just told a parable to the religious leaders about them. It's like, you, you've killed all the prophets. Now, now God has sent his son. Here you are killing him. Now, look at the latter part of verse 17. But when they, who's they? That's the Pharisees. This is the scribes, the chief priests. When they heard this, they said, that must never happen. Now remember, Jesus has already entered Jerusalem for the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So he's just a few days away right now of dying on a cross. But he looked at them, verse 17, Jesus said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a quote there from Psalm 118.22. The cornerstone is a foundation. The, so what Jesus is saying, the very stone, meaning me, he is the stone, 
that you rejected, that you didn't want on your foundation, it's now, it's holding everything up. It's the most important stone. Everyone who falls on that stone, that stone being the cornerstone, that stone being Jesus, will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Now understand the difference. We're not talking about physically broken. The message of the gospel speaks to broken people. What it means in verse 18, I want you to follow this, Broadway Baptist. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. That means spiritually, in order to get saved, you have to realize that you're lost. You come to the cross and you fall and you're broken and Jesus puts up the pieces, meaning he saves you. You come confessing your sins. Jesus, the Messiah, puts you back together. The latter part of verse 18, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Meaning, when it, Jesus, the stone, you reject him, when you die without Christ, you go to eternal punishment. You're shattered. You're not just separated from God. The Bible describes it as the eternal lake of fire. Gone. It's uh, he's saying Jesus will be the stone where you fall and bow down and get saved or the stone will fall on you and crush you and you go to hell. That's what he's saying here. These folks, these religious leaders are rejecting the stone that God sent. When the scribes and the chief priests, or it says then the scribes and the chief priests, looked for a way to get their hands on him, that very hour. They couldn't wait. They were wanting to kill this man immediately because they knew he had told this parable against them. But look at this. But they feared the people. And what that means is the people loved Jesus. He had a following. And they could not kill him because they didn't have a just cause to arrest him. So, uh, this is very important. How we end this parable is how we launch into this teaching here on giving and tithing. And what's important about this is Jesus, the, the, the chief priests and Pharisees, they had a religious law. Well, Jesus, he didn't break any of these laws. What he was doing is he's telling these stories that just were about them, that threw them into a rage and very much upset them. So, all right, so now what we're going to do is the Pharisees are going to um, ask a question here. And they're going to try to prove him. They're going to try to trip Jesus up. So this is going to be our, our message on tithing here, what we're going to see here. But you follow in your Bible. Verse 20, at this point. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous. These were phony people who came to Jesus. So they could catch him in what he said. To hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. And you don't show partiality. But teach truthfully the way of God. You know, when someone's about to say something maybe harsh to you, they always say something very kind to butter you up before the real attack is about to happen. And that's what's going on right now. They say, Jesus, we know how great you are. 
you speak very impartial. But here's our question. Now remember, this isn't a real question. The purpose of the question is pu- they're doing this publicly so they can, ma- they, and what they're going to do here, they're going to question Jesus on paying taxes. Now I want you to understand, remember, Jerusalem, Israel, was right there in the Middle East. They had their own religious laws among the Jewish folks. But Rome ruled over them. So when they paid their taxes, they had to give to God their tithe, their, 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 their um, offering to the church. But then they also had to pay taxes on top of that to Rome, who ruled over them. And Rome also protected them. They were protected by Rome. You know, if some invading army came and attacked Israel at this point, here around Jesus' time, 33 A.D., it wouldn't have been the Jews that would have been fighting. It would have been the Romans that would have defended them. So that was their benefit of having Rome over them, but that also meant they were taxed. So that protection came at a great cost. Well, the problem with this is it, the Jewish folks, they despised having Romans, the Romans, over them. So what it is is because they had to pay these extra taxes, and they were rip, basically ripped off. So this is the question here. Now, remember, Caesar is over Rome. He's the emperor. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 22. But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, so Jesus right away thinks, this isn't a real question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's what he's picking this up, obviously. It's not a genuine question. Verse 24, look what Jesus says on it. Show me a denarius. A denarius is important because that is a Roman coin. That's not the Jewish coin, it's a Roman coin, and that's what you would pay your tax to the Romans with. So show me a Daenerys whose image and inscription does it have. Well, who would it have? Obviously Caesar's, they said. Verse 25, well then, he told them, look at this, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, Jesus did something remarkable here. He affirmed government authority yes you're under roman rule you must pay your taxes that's romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7 very clear we are expected to pay our taxes and uh, respect our government but also we also must give to god the things that are god's so we must certainly give we can't neglect one or the other see what would happen if jesus would have bashed the romans publicly like that he would have been arrested for treason because he here he is teaching against the roman government we need to arrest him and throw him in, and certainly execute him for for doing that now if he would have said um you know just just give to um just give to rome don't worry about god then all of a sudden the jewish people who he's teaching they will be like you know this man's not upholding um, the tithe he's not old, holding giving you know i thought he was a religious leader and now he's he's talking about how great rome is so what jesus did is he affirmed both of these he's saying you give to rome but you also you give to caesar and you also give to god they were not able to catch him in what he sa- said in public and being amazed at his answer they became silent so here's our question we're going to answer tonight and this is where it comes to tithing this, Jesus just affirmed giving to God. So we want to answer the question, 
What does it mean to give to God? All of us here, you have to have money in order to live. Everything in the world costs money. It costs money to drive to church here. You had to buy gas here for that. So I want you to pull. I'm going, we're going to look at this handout here. This is what Jesus is doing. Number one, Jesus affirms Caesar's authority. The United States government is our authority. We have to obey the law of the land, including paying taxes. We have to do, uh, we have to pay our taxes and certainly give to our government. Jesus does not equate Caesar's authority with God's authority. He doesn't do that. He says, hey, this is your Roman coin. Whose face is on it? It's, it's Caesar's face. All right, within that Caesar, you go ahead and give him your denarii. If he wants it, you give it to him. But you also need to give to God what's God. So he's not saying Caesar has great authority. He's saying if Caesar wants to go around making these coins with him face on it, you go ahead and give it to him because those are his coins. But you also are expected to give to God. Taxes belong to Caesar and our tithes belong to God. One of the things there's a movement today in many churches. And maybe some of you might have heard this. You might go to some churches and say, we don't believe in tithing anymore. Because. Uh, we don't see it in the New Testament. I'm about to show you that that's not true. They'll say the New Testament says you just need to give freely and just give generously. So whatever that looks like, whether that means you give a, a dollar or two dollars or a million dollars, whatever that generous giving looks like, you need to be you need to be able to answer that. So let's go through here, and I want to, we want to see what the Bible talks about and what the Bible means when it talks about tithing. The tithe in the Bible was first performed by a man named Abraham. Abraham had a guy named Melchizedek come visit him. Melchizedek was a king, and what happened here is uh, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, gave him a blessing. Abraham gave him 10% of what he owned. And that's the very first mention, that's in Genesis 14, 19 through 20. That's our first tithe in the Bible. So who's the first tither? It was Father Abraham. Father of Israel, uh, Father of Israel gave the first tithe. In the, in the law, which would be uh, the first, what we call the Torah there, the first uh, five books of the Bible, tithing was included. It's there in Leviticus 27, 30 through 32. Now, if I did not tithe, that was and tithe is to your church. That's what we see. That was giving to the temple. That was giving to the tabernacle back in back in Moses' time. If you robbed God, meaning if you withheld your tithe, you were then expected to give it back with 20%. So let me illustrate that. Let's say my tithe this week is $100. So I owe Broadway Baptist Church $100. You know, Terry and I, we didn't. We didn't really want to give this week, so we wanted to go out to eat. And then after that, we wanted to uh, maybe take the kids to the jumpy place, uh, jump land there. Well, I don't even know, air, air zone. So we, we went there, and they jumped around. And next thing you know, that costs $100 because those places are expensive. So there goes my $100. That should have gone to God. So I have robbed God of his money. I spent his money in places that it should have gone to him. According to Old Testament in Leviticus 27, 32-32, I now don't owe God $100. I owe God $120. That's the, 20, that's the one-tenth of 
basically interest that you have to pay if you withhold or rob God. That's straight out of the Bible, Leviticus 27, 30 through 32. So we see in the Old Testament that you had to, your tithe went up if you were withholding it from the Lord. There were consequences for that. So now I own 120. All right, many folks say, it's really interesting, Zach pulled what you call the free will offering this morning. They collect, I was proud of our church. Keith, they collected $750. That's what Zach said. We really gave. We gave more to the free will offering for the band, and they deserved it, than we normally give to the, um, uh, the benevolent ministry. We normally give about five or 600 for that. So the band, they got a generous offering for that. And that was spontaneous by Zach. Uh, I, mean, I don't even know if we had guys here at these doors. I know we had them back there, so I don't even know if they made them up there. But what happened was, Zach felt led by the Lord, said this band drove all the way from Oklahoma to come here. And, you know, we didn't pay them hardly anything. I mean, just food, gas, I mean, just bare nothing. You know, we want to send, we want to, these folks took out of their time to drive. I mean, it's a two-day drive to get over here from Oklahoma. It's just not right around the corner to get here. I guess if you drove all day long, you could make it in one day, like 13, 14 hours. But it was, it was a long trip. Zach felt less as why don't we just have some people stand at these doors and just if you feel led to give, you need to give. In fact, let's turn there in our Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 12.6 because I want you to know the difference between different types of offerings. This is important. These offerings we see here, what Zach called was what we call a free will offering. A free will offering is in addition to your tithes. A free will offering would be the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. This is just where you you say, you know, God has blessed me. I want to support North American missions. I want to support the band that drove here from Oklahoma. I want to support whatever evangelist, whatever music group, whatever. If you received a blessing from someone that came, you give them, if you feel led, a free will offering. This is found in the Bible. Look here, Deuteronomy 12, 6. Look what the Bible says. You are to bring there your burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now remember, what is a burnt offering and sacrifices? You were Jewish back in Old Testament. We don't have burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why? Jesus was that sacrifice. But in Bible times, you took your lamb, your dove, and you went to the altar, and you made that sacrifice there. That was for the forgiveness of your sins, that God is, the theme for denial was clean, so that you could be clean. God would forgive you of those sins. So keep going here. Your tenth, that's your tithe, and personal contributions. So that there is the tithe. That's my tenth I'm making to the Lord. That is your tithe to Broadway Baptist Church. That's your what you're giving to God. Now look at this. Your vow offerings. What is a vow offering? A vow offering, and we haven't done this yet since I've been in the church I used to be at. Have you ever been to church and you got a pledge card? Have you ever been somewhere, uh, you know, even schools, you might get these in the mail. You get a pledge says, I'm going to pledge $30 a month to the church's building program. I'm going to pledge $150 a year to help pay for a new youth room over here. So what happens is maybe uh, uh, one Sunday you have a big pledge Sunday where folks pass out the cards. You have a big dinner. And I want, th- 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 this is important because some of you blow this stuff off, but I take it serious. 
well, I don't take it serious. God takes it serious. When you make a vow, remember the Bible, you let your, if you make a commitment and promise, you sign your name and says, I promise to give $100 a month to help pay for this new church over here. That would be in the Bible what we call a vow offering. That is in addition to your tithe. Okay, follow me on this. This isn't a free will offer. This is a promise. So it's maybe over a period of time that you're going to make a commitment over a, a couple of three years. When I first met Sherry, our church, this was about 2003, our church, she's shaking her head. Our church was going through a building project or, or a big remodel project, and they, they did this. They passed out these commitment cards, and what they did, if you filled one out um, and turned it in, um, they obviously put it in the church system, and about once a quarter probably, share every other twice a year, they'd mail you a statement on your financial statement. Then you have your pledge commitment. So over here, you would know if I pledge $1,000 and I've given $10 towards it, I owe $980 towards that vow that I have made to the church. And literally, there was a running total of where you're at. So here's the deadline. You've pledged this. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's letting you know. They're just saying, you've made this vow here. This is where you're at in that. So that was why, and I remember seeing that for the first time. So, Sherry, you, you still have a good ways to go on your vow there, on your vow offering that you made to the building program. That's a vow offering. That's what that means. A Look at this, verse 6. And a free will offering. A free will offering is usually a spontaneous offering just out of the love of your heart. We don't really call out free will. We just call it love offerings all the time. Where you just feel, I'm going to give because God has blessed me, and it's a spontaneous one-time gift to help whatever cause. What we did this morning is we had our regular offering that we the teenagers passed their plates, and they did a good job. And then at the very end of the service, we had what we call a free will offering, according to the Bible, for that. It also says, in the firstborn of your herds and flocks. Now, that was required there. You were to give your firstborn of the, uh, your flocks to the Lord um, when, when, they were cer- when they were certainly born with that. Those are all the, in Deuteronomy 12, 6, those are all the different offerings there in the Bible. So when we hear, hear about a free will offering or a love offering, that is talking about, Something such as the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And we do this on the church from time to time. And it's good to give a free will offering. God is wants us to be a generous give, uh, giving. All right, <coughs> giver. Your tithe, look at this. Your tithe goes to the church. When you tithe, when it talks about in uh, Deuteronomy 12, 6, when it talks about giving your tenth, what it's talking about there, it's not talking about giving to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. It's not talking about giving to the UK Athletic Club. Not talking about giving to Samaritans first. Those are all good, maybe good ministries, and, or no, it's not a ministry, but good organizations, even nonprofit organizations. But a tithe in the Bible, where does a tithe go? A tithe goes to a church. So why a church? These other organizations, these parachurch ministries, they're doing great work. They're, they are. They do very good work. But listen, Jesus didn't establish Samaritan's Purse. Jesus didn't come and die for an evangelistic association. Jesus started, he founded one organization. What did he start? He started the church. He did that in Matthew 16, 18. He, he started that, and it, and it flourished. When you give your tithe, 
you're giving it to a local church. Say, well, what about the Old Testament? What did they give to? Remember the very first church, when we start seeing this giving like this, this giving of a tenth, even though Abraham gave to Melchizedek, that's the first time we see a tithe. But the, when we see in the book of Exodus, when the tithing starts to be a part of the law for the Israelites, when they're out in the wilderness and they're just roaming around, and that's with the tabernacle. That's the portable church. Remember, the tabernacle became the temple. First you had the tabernacle. What's that? It's a portable church, portable temple. Then starting with, <coughs> starting with Solomon, the very first temple, that became the temple. So they would bring their tithe to the temple. And then you know, there was a second temple. And then after that, then it, Jesus, the church, replaced the temple. So it goes tabernacle, temple, church. And see, now the church is all local. It's not one central location. So you tithe to your local church. He's saying here that the um, tithe should be built up. It should build up the house of God with the worshiper's tithe. That's where it goes. So it's very tempting to say, you know, I'm going to give my offering this week to this other good organization that's doing the good work, but God expects us to give to the church. Why the church? God works through the church. And here's why this is so important. Organizations, like last month, I had a bunch of little kids, and we went to uh, Winter Jam. They collected an offering at the service. It's not a service, the concert, and they're passing a bucket. I mean, I put, I put some money in there. That would be what you would consider a free will offering. Now, this is on top of your $15 mission to get in. So you, I gave a free will offering to that. Now, here's why that is not a church. Winter Jam comes in once a year. Absolutely, the guys are up there talking about Jesus. They're singing songs about Jesus. It's completely Christ-centered, incredible experience. If someone were to go to that, and I'll invite all these teenagers and young adults to come experience that. They would have a great Saturday night of worshiping the Lord, hearing fantastic music and messages. Great event. All right. How then do I connect these children or these young adults, whoever is at Winter Jam, to the ongoing regular discipleship of a local church? The strength of Broadway Baptist Church we're open for business. Sunday morning, you come to Sunday school, you learn God's Word. Sunday morning, you also go to morning worship. You hear the preaching, the teaching God's Word. Sunday night, we have Awana for children. Zach meets with the teenagers downstairs. We have Sunday evening service ser sermon that goes through the Bible. Wednesday night, we're open for business. We have youth group. We have women's Bible studies. We have choir practice. We have prayer meeting and Bible study. That is the ongoing Three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you come on a regular basis. This is what Christian discipleship looks like. You come here and you worship the Lord. While doing that, we connect people in this community in Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. If they aren't connected on those three areas, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, they really aren't part of this church. They're doing a special event. They're doing the one and done. D now is great, but the next D now is next March. 
Like some of these children, teenage parents, they can't sit around saying, well, I'll come back next year in 2020. No, you come to youth group on Wednesday. You come to youth group on Sunday night. That's the power of the local church. Jesus connects the church on ongoing weekly discipleship. It's family-centered. It's gospel-centered. It's an opportunity for people year-round to certainly connect. That is why the church is the parachurch organization, the college ministries that they have on campus, those are good, but that's still not church. That's why Jesus established a church and giving goes to a church. Keep going here in your handout. You know, God asked us in one area to test us in the area, one section. You know what the area he asked us to test us in? The area of tithing. We won't turn there. This is one of the pre- most preachers' favorite scriptures. It's Malachi 3.8. And he told the folks, and God did through Malachi, you have been robbing God. How have you been robbing God? You robbed God through tithes and offerings. When we fail to give to God, we are literally saying, God, there's other things that are more important. You know, in the New Testament, in the book of uh, First. First Timothy chapter 3, being a church leader, one of the high requirements is you're a giver. You know, I personally believe every time the men that pass the offering plates, they should be tithers. And here's why. If you aren't giving yourself, it's hard to pass the offering plate. And the reason why is you're at listen to this guy, you're asking people to do something that you yourself aren't doing. Listen, if you're a tither, if you love to give, you should have no shame. Put that offering plate in their face. Why? You give. There should, you shouldn't be afraid. Don't be bashful. If you can, if I can give, you can give. Listen, also, leadership. If you're going to be in a leadership position at church, what you're doing, especially on the stewardship committee, if you're on the finance committee, if you're way up and making, could you imagine someone making financial and money decisions for a church and they themselves don't even give? Could you imagine people who are spending all the money of the church, and they themselves don't even give. Leadership, this is right up at the top at leadership. You want to be a leader, Broadway Baptist Church? You know, I don't know how much folks give. I have no idea. I don't see that. Vicki Sims sees that. She's the only one that knows that. But there should be an expectation. We interview new de- deacons, Ray Vasky and I. We sit down there and ask them, are you a tithe or do you give? And if they say no, they shouldn't be a deacon. They shouldn't be a leader. You shouldn't be passing off and play if you can't give yourself. You shouldn't be serving on leadership if you aren't a tither yourself. And the reason why is because in Malachi 3.8, we are told that when we don't give, we are robbing God. It's highway robbery. Listen, Jesus owns everything. Everything. He is the creator of all, including money. And he expects us as believers to return the blessings that he has given to us. And <clears throat> one of the things in church, many folks say all the time, I hear it, says, well, I'm not giving my church because I don't agree with how money is being spent. Well, then you need to hold the church accountable. You need to go You go look at the budget. Say, I need to go talk to see how, the, how this money is being spent. I need to go talk to who's spending this money. Why are they buying this and not buying this? Why is this being this? There's nothing wrong with that. Now, you don't need to go in there with a critical crazy attitude but going in there saying i have some genuine pure questions absolutely churches need accountability but 
the, the, Jesus talks about here, Malachi 3 8 talks about the principle of giving is that if you're not giving, it's your attitude. You're actually robbing God. And he says, God says, if you aren't tithing, you need to test me in this. The one area God asks for a test is in the area of giving. Look here, Jesus affirmed tithing in Matthew 23, 23. He actually said, you know, Pharisees, you go out and you're so good at your giving, your tithe. You're so good at giving 10% to the church, but you fail in so many other areas, such as your attitude and your robbing God. We are instructed in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 to get be a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. What that means is if your attitude is sour and you have no desire to give, I mean, God is looking at your heart. All right. Does God require Christians to tithe in 2019? I want to go through these three things here. Yes. Tithing is being obedient to the scriptures. Jesus never denounced it. He never spoke bad. He even took it to a new level. He says, not only should you tithe, God is even concerned about the attitude of your tithing. He's saying you need to be giving in love and generosity. You need to be certainly tithing in your cheerfulness. Number two, God wants Broadway Baptist Church before us. You know, it's sad. I have watched on the news that church in Ashland, Kentucky, forgot the name of it. Y'all know this. I shared on Facebook not too long ago. That just slowly died out. Was once, 50, 60 years ago, ran 1,500 people. Huge church. It is sad sad to see a church die there should church should never die jesus established he loves the church we have to be convictional when I, when the when the church is preaching the gospel when the gospel is going out and the bible's being preached and taught and all the different ministries of this church when they're pointing back to jesus he will bless that we will see more baptisms we will see more teenagers here next year you know, Zach said, oh, we'll have 80 kids. We really will have 80 kids next year. We went to 42. Why can't we go get 38 more and make it 80? Absolutely, you can have 80 kids. I want y'all to, you put 80 kids in the sanctuary, it's going to change your church completely. So you have a completely different church with 80 teenagers sitting in the first five pews right here. That's a completely different attitude. That's exciting. Sherry and I grew up in a church like that, and we want our church to be that way. Young people need to come and hear about Jesus. All they hear about is sin and garbage all out there. You go on college campuses, it's trash, trash, trash. You come here and you hear about the Lord. How does that, what, what pays for all this? Does, do we have trees in our parking lot that grow money? No. You give Broadway Baptist Church, if you give 10 cents, you have a 10 cent church. You give $100, you have a $100 church. What that means is, if you want your church, to, if you want, you want our church to be broke, struggling, always just woe is me. Please give a dime. That's what you end up with. Church, we have to see the greater vision of what giving, giving. When you give to the church, that supports these ministries, such as our student ministry. It supports our children, our college ministry. It supports our new service that we're going to begin on June 2nd. It's not free. That drum set, church, that drum set costs $3,000. It came in Monday. That's a $3,000 drum set. Where'd the money come from? It came from you. You bought it. That's, that is what that is. 
Now, you can say, well, that costs too much. You know, I asked, I thought, you know, I asked uh, Chris, I said, Chris, that costs so too much. Or how much was a pearl? He said, a pearl drum set was like 5000 So it was actually a good value. That's not a pearl drum set. It's the one below it right there. But what, what the point is, a church, in order to flourish, in order to have a dynamic ministry, ministry costs money. And the money comes from our tithes and offerings. And this is straight out of the Bible. It's not that your pastor wants you to give for him. You're giving to God. Number three, your tithing will produce a return. You should always get a return on your dollar here at Broadway Baptist Church. We should not be wasteful. That's not a wasteful, that's not a wasteful expenditure. How does tithing produce a return? Tithing changes your life. Changes your life because you're testing God that you're told to do it. It's being obedient to God. And it changes the lives of others. How does it change the lives of others? When people get saved, when Kathy gets baptized, and her parents were here in their unchurched family. Why? Because they had a friend invite them to our youth group. And she wanted to connect with this church. She wanted to identify and follow Christ. She wanted to come to winter retreat and get baptized at D-Now weekend. That is the return. If we don't give, you won't have that. You will have a church going out of business. Giving, tithing, free will offerings, vow offerings, this is exciting for a church. It's something that's a blessing. We want to be that church that at the end of the year, there's leftover money. And we literally go to God and say, God, we have this leftover money. What should we do to it? Well, we give it to missions. We give it to Kenny and Cheryl Morris in Panama. We give it to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. We give it to the Awana missionaries. We give it to send Salt Lake City and help teenagers go on mission trips. This, this July, when they take 15 people out there to Salt Lake City, some of those kids, I won't tell you, none of them hardly even been on mission trips. This is all first-timers, brand-new people, first time in their life they've been on mission trips. They will remember that the rest of their lives. I promise you. I remember when I was their age, I went to Boston. I'll never forget it. I went to Jackson, Mississippi, and God called me into ministry. God changes lives through our giving. <clears throat> All right, back to the book of Luke. Last section here, Luke chapter 20. Okay, 30 minutes. Message there on tithing. And you have everything you need to know in your handout. So if anybody ever questions you about giving, you can look those scriptures up and go, bam, here's why giving is biblical. Here's what Jesus said about it. And here's what the Lord expects of us. Verse 27, look right here. I want to give you some understanding on this. The Sadducees. This is between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and Jesus. The Sadducees were liberal. They were Democrats in Jesus' time. What that meant? was they believed that the resurrection was one of, it didn't, it didn't really happen. And the reason why is because in Genesis through Deuteronomy, you do not see any reference to the resurrection. The Pharisees were the conservatives. They were the Republicans. They were the ones that sat there and hung to every letter of the law and were merciless. They, were, they had no heart at all. They were trying to kill Jesus. So one, you have these, they, one interprets the Bible very liberally, the Sadducees. The others over here are so conservative that they would rather, they're the ones killing, try, literally trying to kill Jesus. But what's interesting about these two 
These two groups both hate Jesus. They're literally fighting for control of the temple. So what's happening here is the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection because it's not found in Genesis, Exodus, they claim, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's called the Torah. That's what we call the law. They say there's no resurrection there, so why should we believe in the resurrection? But Jesus is going to answer that question. So that's very important while we read this. All right, Luke chapter 20, verse 27. Some of the, of the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came up and questioned him. They're questioning Jesus. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now, that there's a quote from Deuteronomy 25.5. Let me just explain this. What Here's the law. All right, um, Sherry has a um, uh, some sisters. So let's say you've got Marcy and you have Holly, and they're both married. I fall down right now and have a heart attack. Let's pretend we didn't have any children. I just died. I'm, d- I'm gone, went to see Jesus. All right? So I've gone on. Well, Sherry, according to Deuteronomy 25.5, if <coughs> she, uh, her, her brother-in-law, should take her, should take her, or that would be my brother, should take Sherry and say, I'm going to marry, well, let's, just, let me, I, let's say I have some brothers. Okay, I have brothers. I had it backwards. I have my brothers, and I die. I didn't even have brothers. That's why I couldn't understand you. So I'm dead. So my brother Bob over here, and we, Sherry, have no children. Bob now has to take Sherry and be her husband. And and have children. Now, what happens, they're gonna have, Sherry's going to have a baby with Bob. Do you know what they named the baby? They named the baby after me. They name it Daniel. That's a little creepy, but that's how it was in Deuteronomy 25.5. If a, if a man died, his brother had to marry the, uh, the widow if they didn't have any children. And the reason was, was to preserve the family line. So now Sherry has a son who's named Daniel. And Bob keeps having babies with Sherry until a son is born. And that's just how, that's how it was back then because, remember, your social security was your son. You, your, your children took care of mama and daddy when they were older. So that's how it was in Bible times. So, that, so understand what happens here. This is a bogus question we're going to get. The Sadducees... Uh, just ask that question. They're quoting Deuteronomy 25.5 when they say this. So now here we go. Verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, also the second, and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Now imagine this. Now there were seven brothers here. I had six other brothers. I die. Bob dies. Mike dies. We're all married to Sherry. I mean, Sherry, you've been now married seven times. You never have any boys. You never have any, <clears throat> I mean, every time, maybe you get pregnant, you only have a girl, or you don't get a chance to have a baby, and your husbands, they just keep on dropping. You burn through seven husbands. You married seven brothers. According to Deuteronomy 25.5, technically, I guess this could happen. Realistically, would it happen? Probably not. So Sherry's been married seven times now. They keep dying. So here's the question. 
finally, the woman died too. So finally, Sherry dies. And she doesn't have any children. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Now, this is a question to Jesus. They're looking at said, Jesus, now, according to the Bible here, who in, in, in the resurrection, now remember, they don't even believe in the resurrection. They, that's why they think this is just bogus. Say, who, who, um, who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? So now this is what's interesting. Jesus is about to teach us about heaven. Look what he says here. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither married nor given in marriage. Jesus just said, here in this age, meaning 2019, here on earth, people get married and they give their children to get married. But in heaven, it's not that way. There is no marriage in, in heaven. But what is interesting, the resurrection, Jesus does affirm the resurrection here. Verse 36, for they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God. So when we die, we actually become like angels. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the living, or is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Now, this is interesting. When Moses saw the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, now remember, they quoted the Torah. That's Deuteronomy. That would have been the first five books. So now Jesus is going to go back to that same book of Moses, the Torah, Exodus chapter 3, and says, when God first appeared to Moses out of the burning bush, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, present tense, meaning I'm still their God, meaning they're alive. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't physically here, they're alive. So where would they be alive at? They're alive in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying there is a resurrection in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, because God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living meaning God is over, over all. Actually, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And this is important, and it's important because what's happening here is we're also told in heaven there's not birth. You know, in heaven, nobody's born in heaven. Birth is something that happens here on earth. There's not marriage. No one gets married. So, Sherry, even though maybe you got married seven times here on earth, you will not be married in heaven. There's not reproduction, meaning there's not sexual relations in heaven. You're not going to have babies or try to have babies in heaven. And not only that, in heaven, death does not exist. No one dies. So these four things we just learned in this passage. There is no birth, marriage, reproduction, sexual relations, and death. In heaven, you do not find those things. So when we a lot of times go to a funeral and you talk about... In and I'm the worst at doing this, too. Sherry and I, even though the Bible says we will recognize each other in heaven, we, we won't be married. Because there's not marriage in heaven. Now, we don't know what that relationship with our former spouses or, or spouses will be like, but there will you'll recognize other believers 
but you won't have a marriage relationship like we have here because there's not there's not marriage in heaven. We aren't married to anyone in heaven. We're really married to God. We're married to Jesus. He's the one who saves us here. And it says here, verse 39, Some of the scribes answered him, Teacher, you've spoken well, and they no longer dare to ask him anything. What we saw in these passages right here is the Pharisees went after Jesus over God and Caesar. They went after trying to get him arrested over under how whether or not he gives to Rome. And he, Jesus went on a teaching about giving to God. The Sadducees, the liberals, they stepped up and said, we're going to go after Jesus on these silly laws in the book of Deuteronomy and say, what if someone's, uh, what if someone's getting married over and over, or dies over and over again? And Jesus says, you don't understand the resurrection. I'm not the God of the dead, but of also of the living because he's actively the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What do we see from these passages tonight? God is telling us that he is their God in this in last passage. Therefore, they must be alive. And we want to conclude mainly on this passage where we're talking about we need to know what the Bible says about money. Money, in many ways, and unfortunately in churches, is the most controversial topic. But there's no reason for it to be that way. The scriptures are so clear. Jesus expect, expects his people to tithe, his people to give. We are a giving church. God blesses us for that very purpose. And not only that, I'm proud of our church, even this morning, giving a $750 spontaneous. That, you know, literally, we had like two minutes to prepare for that offering to be ready to give to those guys that certainly came and played. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray as we close here with our invitation, as we close every service, Lord, that you speak to us about what the Bible says about giving, about our attitude towards giving, also about the heaven, how we know in the Bible that we won't have relationships with our spouses and maybe with others that we have here on earth. Lord, it will be a new identity, and I pray that we respond to you. Lord, I just give you this invitation. Thank you for bringing us here on this Sunday night service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Steve Mosco is going to close us in, or close us with an um, invitation here. We have a, we close every service with a hymn of invitation. I'm going to invite everyone to stand up. You stand up, and I'll be standing out front waiting for you to respond. Would you stand up as we sing hymn 433, I Surrender All.
Betty for our hymn of invitation. We do. We have church again on Wednesday night, so you need to certainly come here. We're um, we meet downstairs in the fellowship hall. We have dinner, and then we're going. We're on um, the eighth of plague, so we're just rolling right through for three more weeks. So uh, Steve's going to close us out, and then I will see everybody on Wednesday.